Hello, and welcome to Elitist Anthropology. It's me, your host, Nicholas. This episode is going to be the first of, um, not this season, obviously, this is season two, it's been going on for a good long minute, but this is going to be the first episode that I do completely alone. And the reason why I wanted to do this episode is because I wanted to put a little bit more anthropology in the elitist anthropology. And so I had the idea that this summer when I was traveling, I spent about three-ish weeks uh, traveling around the Mediterranean that I would make episodes about the places that I go. And so I bought this really cheap microphone um, and took it with me while I was there. And I thought maybe I'll interview some people or, you know, I don't know. That didn't really come together because the microphone was horrible. Oh my God, it was so bad. So I ended up recording a lot of stuff on my phone and that's going to be probably towards the end of the episode. I'm just going to layer those sounds and let you, you know, listen to the soundscape and sort of hear some of the things that I was hearing. Um, But mainly I just kind of wanted to talk about place. We talk about place so much on this podcast, where people are, where they're working, why they're working, why they're there, where they came from, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But understanding through the lens of experience is different than understanding through the lens of history is different than understanding through the lens of like nature or climate, you know, anything like that. So I just kind of wanted to bring some new perspective or bring maybe not new perspective, but I don't know, just introduce you guys to something to to places that maybe you've heard of obviously all these places you've heard of you've heard of Athens, you've heard of Istanbul, you've heard of Rome, of course, many of you have probably been there. Um, but maybe to contextualize your ideas of these places through my experience, because in a way. Is that not how understanding or culture is generated? Just a, you know, constant recontextualization through a different lens. I don't know. Anyway, I have a sort of an outline. This is actually the third time that I've tried to record this episode. I'll just go ahead and say, just like the City Girls said on their latest album, if you're expecting some J. Cole in the <laughs> in the basement, uh, no, if you're expecting a, a very tightly, um, tightly rounded, tightly and rounded, maybe don't go together. But if you're expecting a coherent speech an essay, extemporaneous speech about the things that I'm going to talk about today, that's not what's going to happen. I have an outline, some things I've, I researched, some things that I talk to people about, and I'm just going to kind of go through it. And hopefully at the end, you'll come away with it, with um, an understanding of, a deeper understanding of like the, what's happening in, in Athens and in Greece more generally. Um, and maybe this, maybe a new idea about what's possible uh, for emerging economies, I guess, if you could call Athens that. So let's get started. The first thing that I want to talk about is ancient Athens and how it compares to the city that I visited. So ancient Athens, if you think about like the Parthenon and the people gathering on the hill, you know, that type of stuff, everything about that is very present in Athens. And it's really interesting how you see all of these monuments and you see all of these places that used to really be functional you know people used to go to the parthenon every single day to vote and to partake in their religion and now it's just sort of like traversed by visitors and by archaeologists but it's a place that's firmly in the past that is also at the very center of the city and you feel that there is a um maybe not a clash but there is some sort of harsh contrast that happens between the newer parts of the city and the older parts of the city. So first, just on a travel perspective, finding accommodation in Athens, hotels versus Airbnb. So Airbnb is a huge deal in Athens, as it is in many places, because it has um, increased the cost of living. People that normally would own rental units for you know families, students, etc., etc., they can make more money renting it day to day to tourists. So that's what they do. I stayed in an Airbnb and I had, I was having a good experience until, uh, so the, <laughs> the Airbnb was actually in a more like industrial part of the city. The layout of Athens was very, it, it was very uncanny to me. I couldn't really figure out like North, north from south from east from west i like sort of got got it towards the end and like understanding like where volumini was and understanding where i was in relation to the acropolis which seems kind of how things kind of how people orient themselves is like 
what direction are you from the Acropolis? How far are you from the Acropolis? But because everything was written in Greek, and I do mean everything was written in Greek, the people spoke, well, most of the people spoke English, but like, it didn't feel, it didn't feel easy to get around. And so I spent a lot of time in Ubers and I took an Uber or a taxi almost everywhere just because I could not get a hold on like walking directions, how to get from point A to point B, um, and even the train, how to get from point A to point B. The only time I took the train was to and from the airport, which I would recommend. It took a, a while, but it was cheap. But anyway, so my Airbnb, I'm staying in this little apartment building. You know, it's fine. It's chill. It's cheap. And then this summer, there was a heat wave. Uh, we'll talk about it a little bit later, too, like more in depth. But there was a really bad heat wave and the AC went out in the apartment. And so I like argued with Airbnb back and forth. I argued with the owner. I was like, yo, like the heat, like the AC is off. Like it's dangerous to be in this building. This is a concrete building with no AC and 115 degree heat. Like this is an oven. Uh, and so we went back and forth and I ended up going to Selena Hostel. When I went to the hostel, I was telling the hostel worker like, yeah, like this is what just happened to me. And she was like shit like that happens all the time a lot of the companies that own those airbnbs are foreign companies there's nobody here that actually manages that building for real so maybe you'll see a contractor you know here and there but if you're like in a desperate dire need of help like you wasted your own time you might as well have just left because they don't give a fuck about you and she was absolutely correct and right now airbnb this i'm recording this um october 29th Right now, Airbnbs are kind of reviled in the public discourse and the company is not doing very well. And I, I think it comes down to the fact that ultimately, like, hospitality is a customer service business. So you can't really have a hospitality company with horrible customer service. Like, Airbnb's customer service is really horrible um, and, you know, have longevity. It just doesn't really seem possible. And I think that the the world that airbnb created might persist but airbnb itself might go away because so many cities are outlawing them are taxing them at increased rates um and locals are really just not happy with it not having it so i think airbnb is an interesting case of like you know technology and real estate and where they meet and how they interact but ultimately i think everybody's realizing that the impact is pretty negative the only thing it does is help like the the medium rich become the very rich um, but it's not that great of a business model for the super rich um, and it has a really negative impact on the poor and middle class people where it persists so yeah that's my thought on airbnbs in athens uh, i want to talk about economic development so Economic development, I would say, is like a buzzword, maybe, and like policy and sustainability. Uh, people talk about economic development as an activity. They talk about it as like a feeling. They talk about it as a mood. But what really is it? So economic development is or could be uh, programs, policies, or activities that seek to improve the economic well-being and quality of life for a specific community or population. So in theory, the way that this would happen, a common one would be like, okay, the city is going to finance a project, right? They're going to build a school or they're going to build a uh, hospital or they're going to build some type of institution. That institution obviously is going to need workers to build it, it will need workers to run it, and then it's going to serve some sort of purpose within the community. And it's going to create jobs, it's going to generate revenue, um, and it's going to maybe restore the city's appearance or culture to the benefit of the residents. Oftentimes, this type of development is funded through bonds, uh, though it can also be funded through private companies or public-private partnerships. And in those situations, what happens, like if it's a public-private partnership is that the city might front some of the money or the, the the federal government agency might front some of the money. The private company will front some of the money. And normally what the private company is paying for is like the exclusive right to provide that service and the exclusive right to share in the profits of that service. And then the city is getting like some sort of discount on the service that's going to be provided. Let's say it's like a hospital. The city doesn't have to pay the full cost of the hospital. They don't see any of the monetary profit but then obviously the people that live in that area now have um, a hospital that's closer to them which most people would like that would be pretty good right so that's what economic development is and Athens is in a really really 
big transition or time of economic development where it's trying to transition from this depressed horribly horribly depressed um debt crushing debt crushed economy to what i would describe as the leading eco-tourism economy on the mediterranean and maybe they would even say the world they're making really big investments into like green buildings and green infrastructure and they're making really big investments into actually expanding the city of athens out to the sea so athens there's this thing called the athenian riviera which is basically supposed to mean that like athens is like an urban city it's maybe I don't know, 10 or 15 miles away from the actual coastline of the ocean of the Mediterranean. But technically, the borders of Athens go all the way from the inner city to the sea. So they're building apartment buildings, homes, uh, and different types of infrastructure to try to spread out Athens proper all the way to the ocean. And the theory is that they're going to Right now they have a housing crisis, right? So the theory is that they're going to build more housing. They're going to, uh, obviously, if more people are living there, they'll need jobs in these outer areas, uh, restaurants, civil services, utilities, et cetera, et cetera. And that also, this is going to like beautify the area because Athens is very naturally beautiful, but the architecture that people, when people talk about Athens being beautiful, they're talking about the ancient architecture that are relics and that are like tourist attractions. The actual buildings built from the time of like the 60s to now are not particularly beautiful or I don't know, is that offensive? Not that they're not particularly beautiful, but it's clear that they're built for function, not to be, uh, you know, aesthetically, you know, gorgeous. Um, Whereas now these buildings that are being built are trying to be. And one of the really big examples is called this project called the Ellen Cone. Now, the Ellen Cone, if I had to um, create an analogy, I would say the Ellen Cone is like Hudson Yards. It's going to be this huge facility with lots of different, you know, shopping, dining, housing, etc. Not only are the services and the aesthetic and the quality of life supposed to be the same as a Hudson Yards, but also the cost is going to be like Hudson Yards, as in it's going to be extremely, extremely expensive. So the sale prices for apartments in the Ellen Cone is going to range between 5,000 to 6,000 euros per square meter. Uh, that's as much as like homes cost in Athens. So apartments in this will cost as much as homes in the southern suburbs. And the southern suburbs is like the bougie area of Athens. You could analogize this to like the Hamptons kind of thing. Now, the average price per square foot in New York was $882 to $1,700 per square foot. So think about that, right? This is going to cost even more than than the average apartment would cost in New York. But the average salary in New York, so the average income in New York was $91,000 in 2020 versus the average salary in Athens is 16,000 euros. So maybe that's about $20,000, maybe a little bit less. Think about that difference. And so you start to ask, at least I asked as I learned about this, is like, well, who is this urbanization for who are the super rich what is this population of super rich people that can afford this in athens and as i talked to locals about it i talked to some people that were working on a tourist you know ship that i was on i talked to a cab driver i talked to the lady at the hostel they just talked to people they said like it's not for us it's for foreigners and it was interesting i think we see a lot of this there's a lot of buildings in new york that are just like empty because billionaires own them but they don't live there they're just you know uh not a tax haven, but just like a place to park your money. Um, But for an economy that's trying to redesign itself, why would it redesign itself around a population that's actually shrinking, right? The super rich of Athens is not that many people and it's getting less every single day. The globally super rich actually is not really expanding. It's just the, the few, the small group of people who have ultra wealth just keep having it. Now, the Ellen Cone is like an environmentalist dream, right? Everything is super green. Everything is designed to be efficient. It's designed to be sustainable. And you, it just prompted me to really think like, you know, as someone who studies sustainability in college and as someone who works in technology now, 
what is the point of researching, developing, and commercializing green innovations, green technology, new technology just in general, if it can't actually serve the needs of the masses? Will it just be that everything is built towards this idea that like the ultra rich are going to get to live uh you know in skyscrapers on mars and the rest of us will just be like wally like either we don't have bones or we just like live on a trash can i don't know but i was really (laughs) i was really thinking about this um and i think even this idea that you know in athens they're spending billions of dollars to build this ellen cone development but the other part of their economy, the tourism part of their economy is really not as developed as it should be. I was walking in the Parthenon and so on the Parthenon or well in the Acropolis, Parthenon is on the Acropolis. The day that I went, it was so hot. It was probably about 105 degrees and there was only one vending machine for water at the very top. Now, the next day, they actually closed the Parthenon because so many people were like passing out due to dehydration. And I thought, this just seems totally ass backwards. Why would you spend billions of dollars to build a quote unquote green infrastructure housing development for the super rich um, to create a new economy when the economy that you already have, like this, you know, tourists visiting attractions um, is crumbling under the weight of climate change. Like you don't need to invest in a new apartment building. You should be investing in more vending machines with water. Like, why why not repair why replace and then why replace with something that there's no way for it to actually be sustainable it's a what's the word called not proverbial question rhetorical it's it's a rhetorical question i don't know i'm not in anybody's government so maybe they've they've got a great plan um also when i was there i saw a lot of art in greece i went to uh the acropolis i went to the acropolis museum Uh, the acropolis museum was was amazing i also went to the national museum of archaeology i would say if you go to greece that you could probably pick one because the museum of archaeology and the acropolis museum have a lot not of the same pieces obviously but like different stuff from the same place so like they got one carving from the cave the other museum got the other carving for the cave and like a lot of their plaques are almost like word for word um because they they're showing they're showcasing the same history so if you only can choose one i would choose the acropolis museum and when i was at the acropolis museum i learned about these things called the elgin marbles so the elgin marbles were statues that were stolen from the parthenon by lord elgin who was a british um, emissary or ambassador to uh uh was it to greece at the time hold up i'm looking at my notes the statues were stolen from the Parthenon, which was an important temple at the Acropolis under the guise of a diplomatic mission. Exactly. So he was on a diplomatic mission. Greece at the time was under the control of the Ottoman Empire. So he took the marbles. He ended up taking them back to England um, and then they ended up in the British Museum. And so for a while, again, because Greece is on this mission to turn themselves into this um eco-tourism economy where they really pride themselves on their heritage and knowledge and culture and natural beauty obviously they want to get these statues back they want to get all of their parthenon statues back and they were actually successful in getting um some things back from the vatican so this year 2023 the vatican returned three fragments of parthenon sculptures to greece and they said it was a quote-unquote gesture of friendship um the greeks tried to use this as momentum in order to get the pieces back from the british museum and the British Museum told them to go to hell. Uh, so in March in 2023, Rishi Sunak said, I'm sorry, but we are never Rishi Sunak, is, who um, is the prime minister of uh, England right now. He said, we are never <laughs> repeat, never giving that shit back um it's against the law of course it's against the brit the the british laws (laughs) that the british made of their own museum prevent them from returning things that are stolen um which is the case for many many communities uh around the world that were uh victims of the british's swindling um but i just think that it's very interesting particularly you know all of the 
every prime minister obviously has held this position, including the more recent ones, because the Greeks have been on this heritage reclamation mission for a while now. So uh, Theresa May, uh, Boris Johnson, and the other lady who I forgot who was only prime minister for two seconds, even she had, she was prime minister for two seconds, but she had enough time to say, fuck y'all. And, but I think Rishi Sunak is interesting because obviously Rishi Sunak is Indian. The British colonized India. That's how his family ends up. You know, that's how Rishi Sunak ends up in the British picture, you know, decades and decades and decades and generations, et cetera, later. But you would think that a British Indian, someone who obviously has to have a perspective and a personal experience with the way that colonization um, steals, destroys, and transforms culture would be a little bit more not apologetic, but just a little bit more flexible, a little bit more flexible or have a different perspective on what it means for the formerly former superpower. I don't know if you would consider the UK a superpower today, but the the country that used to be in control, having to make reparations, concessions and reimagine their relationship to territories that were less powerful than them. And we think in the West um, although this idea is fading and this is changing, but we think that like diversity and leadership translates into different types of decision making, that different things will get done if more diverse powers have um, control. Now, Rishi Sunak, I think the only thing that maybe separates him from a uh, modern conservative in the UK is the fact that he's Indian meaning that his like class status, education status, political perspective, etc., could basically be that of Boris Johnson. But still, the idea is popular that diversity in leadership, uh, diversity in heritage will turn into a change in policy. But through Rishi Sunak's refusal to return the Elgin marbles, uh, which are not a particular value to the British Museum, because I believe the British Museum is free, I think it would just set a really negative uh, precedent negative in the sense that then every country would be like okay now is our turn to get our shit back um he refused it and you know the west doesn't have a right to own history especially when progress is no longer moving in a linear direction from east to west from the past into the future we're sort of circling back where innovation economic mobility um and political maybe not political power, but certainly political change is happening in the East, not in the West. And that's where the future is moving forward, where it feels like the West is really regressing. And so we sort of see that there's this really superficial fight to hold on to power. And the way that that takes place is through the um, control or refusal to let go of the heritage pieces, like the Elgin marbles so something to think about and, and definitely something to look into um I'm recording this in October now they still have not been returned but it wouldn't surprise me if in some years that they actually are okay now I want to talk about migration so I'm gonna be brief only because I want to be careful with the way that I speak on this topic there's a lot of stuff going on in the Middle East right now, currently. This is October 29th. There's been a migration crisis um, across the Mediterranean, um, I would say, since about 2014. It still continues to the present. And we'll talk about that in a later episode uh, when I talk about Rome and, and Georgia Maloney. But Greece, Turkey, and Italy have been at the center of the show when it comes to the refugee crisis basically in really simple terms there's been millions of people trying to migrate from north africa east africa and the middle east into europe for various reasons different wars famines droughts that are happening concurrently some people call it the poly the poly crisis that's a word that came out of i want to say davos um and basically it's millions of people trying to move across the ocean into societies where they don't even have the infrastructure to actually support the people that live there. Like any new population moving in, it breeds resentment, 
racism, etc., etc., etc. So, I want to talk about one specific situation uh, that's called the Moira Fire. This happened on September 9th, 2020, and it was the largest refugee camp in Europe. It was on an island, and it was also next to an olive grove. So basically, the camp was overcrowded. It was first established in 2013 to host more than 13,000 people at a time, and or it was host to 13,000 people at a time. It was not designed to host 13,000 people. And it was notorious for its precarious and unsafe living conditions, conditions that were manufactured and maintained for years by Greek and EU policies that were basically not trying to integrate the refugees, uh, but try to stall. Stall, try to figure out, can we send these people to somewhere else? Can we try to deport them back to where they came from? Everything except for what most human rights lawyers agree would have been the proper thing to do which is to integrate them so because of overcrowding the camp became expanded into a nearby olive grove known as the moria jungle where living quarters were makeshift so rather than like maybe the tents or small encampments that you would imagine for a uh migrant camp um people were building houses out of sheet metal people were building houses out of wood they were typically made out of pallets and tarps they were making shelters basically one night, a fire starts, and an investigation by uh, the organization called Forensic Architecture found that, based on photos and videos of the spread of the fire, that it was more likely that it was more than likely to have been started by improvised electricity supplies in the midst of a flammable tent-like housing in a hot, dry environment spread by the wind. And this was corroborated by a report from the Lesbos Fire Department. Now. What happened in real life, uh, well, not in real life, well, these investigations and that report, obviously that's real. What happened in the criminal system was that the Greek authorities tried to find someone to hold responsible. And they ended up using the testimony of um, some locals in the camp to charge uh, five or to charge six people on the testimony of a single witness and reportedly this witness was the leader of a rival ethnic community inside the camp and the greek authorities failed to even bring that witness to the court to stand witness so this is an ongoing trial but i i think that it illustrates really so many different things that are true not just about immigration into greece but immigration for refugees into the west moving from the global south to the west what happens to those people they go to the west because the west prides itself and is constantly marketing itself as a world this is i would say america and this is europe and this is canada markets himself as a world where anything can happen anyone can make it money grows on trees anything can happen that's the image that is projected through culture through media and through politicians how many times did people us people living in america be living in an inflationary environment that was hyperinflationary and every month did joseph robinette biden get on tv and say inflation is not that bad everything is fine you could be at target looking at something that costs 75 percent more than it cost um from a year ago and still go on to uh you know twitter or turn on the news and see many government officials telling everyone the economy is fine the economy is great so that's what's projected into the global south that, okay, yes, this is perfect. This is amazing. Then when those people come, right, to try to get some of the, to get some of the dream, to get some of the wealth that they know is being extracted from them, ultimately, they show up and they get put into situations like Moira, put into camps, basically, camps that are not funded properly, camps where they don't have resources, camps where they get caught waiting in a legal system to be processed um, but when does the processing come how does the processing come the failure to manage those camps leads to crisis leads to crime leads to desperation leads to death leads to basically everything horrible that a human could experience and rather than the system that called those people in taking responsibility and improving it turns around and blames them somehow so 
these people, they're living in a camp on an island that they can't leave. They can't return home because they won't be allowed back. They can't enter into the EU uh, because they're, they'll be deported, right, if they try to leave this island. They're trying to be in the immigration process and eventually get to the end so that they can get back to living life, you know, raising their children, going to school, having a job, trying to make meaning in life. But before they can do that, the conditions of their jail because that's what it is really the conditions of their jail end up killing them in a fire or imprisoning them as they're held responsible for what are really policy failures infrastructure failures that happen from the government so over the past decade greece has experienced a major wave of outward migration this well this is an immigration crisis right so greece has two migration crises the immigration in where they don't have the infrastructure to be able to handle it they also don't even have the cultural situation to be able to deal with integrating a new population of people but they also have an immigration this is with an e-crisis where people that are born and raised in Greece, again, going back to that Ellen Cohn and that Airbnb, right? The economy has fallen through the center. And so they're thinking for me and for my life, I need to get up out of here so that I could get access to resources. So it's a little bit twofold. So over the past decade, Greece has experienced a major wave of outward migration with more than half a million people leaving the country. And that's half a million people out of a population of only 11 million. And this exodus was driven by Greece's prolonged economic crisis, which erupted in 2009 in the context of the Eurozone debt crisis. And it technically ended in the late 2010s, but the impact is still being heavily felt in Greece's society and economy today. Uh, Two and three of the people that have left has said there's no likelihood of them returning in the next five years and one in four said that it one in four said it was fairly likely that uh, maybe they would return and only five percent said that they would return in that time frame and the main reason for immigration was financial eight out of ten people said that when they were leaving uh greece they found it very difficult to financially cope and i'll just briefly talk about the economic situation uh, one way to put it was I was talking with uh, one of the workers on a, on a catamaran that I was on and she said, basically, we're the fuck around, like, you know, the term fuck around and find out. OK, well, the previous generations fucked around and we're the generation of finding out. And she was my age. She was 21. There was another girl that was working on the boat who's a little bit older. She was like 27. And she said the same thing. So basically. The way that I can explain it is that Greece had a debt crisis where they defaulted on their debt. When someone defaults on their debt, it's basically like saying, I ain't got it. The country was relying on foreign debt to be able to fund the public sector, fund schools, fund the many um, different aspects of the economy that the Greek government was responsible for. And when they said, we ain't got it, their creditors, which is the people that they borrowed the money from, came in and said, all right, all right, all right, all right. You ain't got it. That's okay. But we're going to have to make some changes here in order to write down your debt. So when somebody writes down your debt, they said, okay, you owed me $10 before we could write it down to go ahead and be $5. And what this did if I could, I'm not a uh, financial scholar, so it's difficult for me to explain this in a clear and concise way, the way an expert would. But if I could describe it to you, I would basically say that the government defaulting on their debt made it so that private industry could enter Greece in an extremely powerful way. And not only was it private industry, it was foreign private industry industry and that changed the dynamics of the economy at least i would say now like pretty permanently um and it also changed the economic outlook of the average greek person so now i'm going to list to you some of the austerity measures that the greek government was forced to follow in order to get their bailout right and so the bailout is when you the bailout was basically they wrote down some of the debt and they gave them some money and they is a wide array of creditors, private lenders, lenders like the IMF, lenders like the EU. So austerity in 2011, the number of public owned companies had to be reduced from 6,000 to 2,000. So public owned companies 
was reduced from 6,000 to 2,000. Companies owned by the government reduced from 6,000 to 2,000. Really try to think of that. A limit of 500 euros per month to 13th and 14th month salary of public employees. So that's their bonus. And abolished for employees receiving over 3,000 euros a month. So if you received more than 3,000 euros a month for your salary, you could not have a bonus anymore. So 36,000 euros a month, that's a a little bit more than $40,000 US. An 8% cut on public sector allowances, a 3% pay cut for public sector utility workers, right? So they just went through an economic crisis and their wages were reduced. A public sector limit of a 1,000 euro biannual bonus. And so that means that they were receiving these bonuses before and then they were completely abolished for, again, for anyone earning over 3,000 euros a month. The number of municipalities, right? So cities, individual cities that are self-governing had to reduce from 1,000 to 400. So imagine the city that you live in, 1,000 to 400, that's like about a, a almost, well, yeah, that's a 60% reduction. Imagine if you in the five cities around you all had to become one and how that would affect the operations of the city. Just think about how your life would shift, okay? That's in the public sector, public pension reform. So lots of people had pensions because lots of people worked for the government in Greece. It was a centrally managed state, basically. A return of a special tax on high pensions. So if you're receiving a high pension, they, they started taxing it. You're a retired person receiving your pension, they start uh, they start taxing it. Uh, women's retirement age was increased from 60 to 65 to match men's retirement age. So there was two different ones. They brought that all together. So if you're a woman who was 59, you now have to work for 60 more years. The average retirement age for public sector workers was increased from 61 to 65. Again, this is because men and women were brought to the same level. They did a tax reform where they added a VAT tax or they, they didn't add it, but they lifted it. So the tax you would pay that would normally be 19% to 23%. Imagine that. Taxes were imposed on private company profits. There was a 10% rise in luxury taxes and sin taxes. So sin taxes on alcohol, cigarettes, and gas for your car. A 10% additional rise, a uh, 10% additional tax rise for all imported cars. So if you're in America and you're buying a Toyota, Toyota Camry, from Japan, come on, run it up, run it up, run it up. Um, and changes were and changes were planned to the laws that governed layoffs and overtime pay. So, what does this mean? This essentially means that the average Greek person lost their job, lost local municipal political autonomy, knew that they were going to have to be working longer in their life, and the basic things cost more like alcohol cigarettes and gas that's basic imagine how your life would shift okay so that happened to them in 2011 but then guess what boom <laughs> it happened again in 2016 it's not funny i shouldn't laugh no it's actually very serious it happened again so they required another bailout in 2016 and they had to take even more extreme austerity measures another cut in pensions another cut in new pensions Another reduction of those higher pensions. Increase required insurance contributions. So the cost of healthcare was going up for them. A value added tax was increased from that 23% to 24%. Fuel taxes were increased. New excise taxes were increased for things like coffee and electronic cigarettes. Increased taxes on tobacco. A tourism tax that affected hotels from two stars and up. A tax on TV subscriptions, landlines, and internet broadband connections. So you're a Greek person living in a depressed economy, and now the cost of living has risen even further while wages have been cut. What are you supposed to do except leave? And this is the same country that is now dealing with millions of migrants. Where does the money come from? Where does the infrastructure come from? Where is the central planning supposed to happen? So we have a cultural reclamation. We have urbanization. We have immigration with the I. We have immigration with the E. And then we have Nicholas. 
on vacation in the summer of 2023, just trying to live, laugh, love, all the while observing all of these things, hearing about all of these things, and wondering how does a sustainability-focused ecotourism economy even happen when the government does not run efficiently, when climate change makes it so hot that you cannot even be outside, when I was there, there were wildfires um, in a tourist, you know, in the resort areas to where tourist towns had to be evacuated. Like I said, the Acropolis just had to be closed. So even this one really big economic engine, which tourism has been record breaking to the 2020, 2021 and 2022, it's been record breaking for Greece. You're bringing in this money. But even with that, you can see the end because it is one day going to be too hot for people to be outside. And they're not even making the decisions that would actually make those things more tenable. So they're building this Ellen Cohn development, trillions and trillions of dollars, but there's not even two water machines on the Acropolis. The steps are not even even. The roads are not even designed to be navigated easily so that people can run in the proper direction from a fire. It's... A beautiful disaster but at the same time the people are so lovely and they're so lively when i was there i actually went to an arctic monkeys concert in one of the old olympic stadiums and there was like ocean mist and you know tobacco smoke and you know amazing music and beautiful beautiful art and people that have a deep love of their country and a desire to find a solution and you know I say all of that to sort of bring me to the idea of, you know, why should we care? Why should you as the audience care about this? Why should I care about this? And I think it's because the way that, at least the way that I perceive it, the way that economic development works and the way that global policy is developed is through use cases. What has been done before will happen again. And I was sort of introduced i mean everybody knows this idea right history repeats itself but i was introduced to this in a really meaningful way through this artist called m.i.a which uh, many of you probably know the song all i want to do is stay in my name and she talked a lot about how the way that internet censorship and social media was used in sri lanka during the civil war became the template for the way that censorship would happen in the West. And that was 100% correct. And I think that the way that we see eco-development happening on the Mediterranean, which are Western, and I say this with quotation marks and asterisks, and again, we're going to get into that in the Rome, in the Rome episode, um, but these are Western societies that are trying to figure out a way to develop against climate, develop tourist economies against climate change, while experiencing economic crises and while experiencing immigration crises. And this is something that is a reality in America, uh, whether you're in Texas, whether you're in California, whether you're in Florida, or even whether you're in New York. Um, and those are the policy issues that are going to come to us. Greece, I think, is maybe seven or eight years ahead of us, Athens specifically, but it's all going to come back. So understanding the models and understanding the policies that are developed on that emerging plane is a way to understand and to intercept and to innovate and knowledge broker the things that are going to come to us. The Cerberus heat wave, the Charon heat wave, those are things that happen in Greece or that happened in Athens this summer that also happened in America. I mean, I was in Texas and it was 115 degrees and then I was in Athens and it was 115 degrees. Now in Texas, we have AC, we have, you know, huge indoor cooling centers, we have some infrastructure to be able to support it, but it's not enough. And it's really not meant to experience that in a long lasting way. And eventually, we're going to get to the point where we have to innovate against climate change, which isn't really something that happens in America in a meaningful way, certainly not in a way that is central to the way that cities are developed and that's the path that Athens is on uh, so that's why it's important to to understand and it's important to think about and I think just in a global sense it's important to widen our idea of not just what's possible but also what's real 
I think that even now, after 2008, Americans don't have a collective idea of what it means to live in economic depression because we're still being sold the idea that our economy is back. Before COVID, people were sold the idea that economy was back. Now COVID is over. You know, during COVID times, everybody was like, oh, yeah, this sucks, this sucks, this sucks. But now, again, people are constantly fed this idea that the economy is back. Okay, well, no, that's not true. And if we look at Athens, we understand when we look at Athens, we understand what happens when an economy is depressed and experiencing austerity. The only difference is that their austerity is explicit. Our austerity is implicit. So, I'm going to leave you with that. Again, no grand, uh, what is this, like, no grand idea or thesis. I just wanted to think about that and and talk about that with you guys. And the end of this episode is just going to be kind of like a soundscape of different field recordings that I took while I was in Athens. I hope you have a great rest of your week and that this episode really gave you something to think on. And I'll be back next week with another episode of Elitist Anthropology. Thanks so much. Ciao. What it's gonna be like, what it's gonna be like, oh, 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 oh,